Masechet Nedarim Daf More about annulling vows. We're going to see a couple of Mishnayot coming up. Some very interesting cases. For example, uh, an extreme makeover case. Uh, someone says, "I vow I'm not going to marry that person because I don't. I think she's ugly." But it turns out she actually was uh, beautiful. Um, or at the very end of the suga, an important source about bankruptcy laws. Like, can the person declare bankruptcy and keep uh, enough to ju- just to live on, or do we take every last penny from him? Uh, which has a lot of relevance. Um, but we start off with a law that says, Someone makes a vow that affects a d- another person. When you annul the vow, you have to be has to be done in front of the other person. So, for example, if I say um, you cannot have any benefit from me, right? We get into a fight, and uh, therefore um, I, I say that uh, you can have no benefit from me. Now you have to know about the vow because if you just come over and then uh, take uh, take a coke from my fridge, you're going to be violating. So you have to know about the vow, and therefore makes also also sense also that. You should be there. If I annul the vow, I say, you know what? I feel bad. I didn't mean it. I didn't realize the consequences. And uh, therefore, you know, I'm going to undo the vow and you can have benefit from me. Uh, when I undo the vow, it should be in front of you, meaning the, whoever is the object of the vow. How do we know that this baraita is true? Uh, so this is referring to a midrash that we alluded to yesterday, but this is the source of it, um, that Hashem told Moshe, while Moshe was in Mijan, to go back to Egypt because the people who had sought his life to kill him in Egypt have died. So Gemara is wondering, why does it, uh, why does Pasuk emphasize that Hashem told him in Mijan, because Moshe made a vow in Midian that he wouldn't go back to Egypt. He told his father-in-law, Yitra, uh, listen, I vow I'm not going to go back to Egypt. I'm sure Moshe told Yitra the whole story. I ran away because, right, that's where I live, but that's where I grew up, but there's people trying to kill me. Hey, can I marry your daughter? And so Yitra's like, well, you're going to marry my daughter then? You know, when the coast is clear, you're going uh, you're gonna, you're gonna marry my daughter, then you're going to want to go back. So Moshe says, no, I make a vow, I'm not going to go back. Uh, so because he made a vow in Midian, in front of Yitro, Hashem says, Therefore, he has to undo his vow also in Midian. Now, how do you know that Moshe made a vow in the first place? Because it says, which means that he wanted to stay. Um, he, he was content to stay with Yitro. That's literally what, what it means, Vayoel Moshe. He was happy to stay with Yitro and marry his daughter. But the word Vayoel, Midrash, connects it with Allah, which means a Shavuah was a vow, same as a Neder, for this, for, this, for this purpose. As we see in Yechezkel, um, he brought him under an oath. Okay, so putting this all together, Vayoel Moshe, from there we learn that Moshe made a vow to Yitro that he's going to stay and take care of the family there, and he's not going to go back. 
Um, so, but then when it is time to go back because the people have died, oh, this is a new occurrence that has come, some, right, uh, a, a new um, uh, event. Um, it, we would have expected when he made the vow that probably he's going to be persecuted there forever in Egypt and therefore he can never go back. So when this new thing happened, uh, Moshe sought to undo his vow. Hashem says, Min Mijan, you have to do it in front of Yitro. Uh, since you made the vow, uh, to Yitro and it involves him, therefore it has to be done all and undone also there. All right, another source. This Pasuk, if we look at it in the original, is talking about the very last king of Judea, Sidkiyah, who did not listen to Yirmiyah's advice to stay loyal to Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, instead, Sidkiyah rebelled against Nebuchadnezzar eventually, even though Nebuchadnezzar is the one who installed him as king, and Nebuchadnezzar made Sidkiyah swear in the name of God. Um, but then he rebelled anyway. So in the Peshat, this vow um, is a vow of loyalty, a vassal oath, uh, that this is, uh, Nebuchadnezzar is going to be the supreme king. And he says, listen, I'll let you be the local king, but you have to be subservient to me. And uh, Sidkiah says, yes, I agree. I will be subservient to you. I'll pay you taxes. I'll be loyal to you in all ways in war. And uh, eventually, he uh, Sidkiah stopped paying taxes so that um, he violated that vow that he made to God that he would be loyal to Nebuchadnezzar. And by doing that, he also violated God's will, as Yeremiah told him. Okay, now um, that's the simple reading of the Pasuk. Notice the original Pasuk just says, Yishpiyah Belokim does not have the word Chaim. So that's why it's in parentheses here that the word Chaim should not be here because it's not in the original Pasuk. Now, what does it mean that Sidkiyah rebelled? So, now this is a fantastic midrash. Not just that he didn't give money, but something else. One time Sidkiyah um, saw Nebuchadnezzar eating a live rabbit. Nebuchadnezzar was embarrassed. I guess he only ate these live rabbits in private. But for some reason, Sidkiah happened to be around and walked in to Nebuchadnezzar's dining room while he's eating this live rabbit. And so Nebuchadnezzar says, Take an oath to me that you will not reveal what I, what, uh, uh, my, my behavior to the public. I don't want it, to, I don't want it to get out. Ishteba, Sidkias is fine. I have an oath, right? I'm not going to embarrass you in public. This is just between me and you. Later on, Sidkiah became sick. He knew he was going to die and he wanted to give, tell the secret. And so he went and uh, annulled his vow. Now Sidkiyahu went to, and he annulled his vow in front of the sages. He went to the Sanhedrin. I mean, he's the king, so he gets to, he gets to the, go to the highest court. And so then he went and told, and eventually Nebuchadnezzar heard that people are making fun of him, um, that he uh, eats live rabbits. And so Nebuchadnezzar knows the only other person that knows his secret is Sidkiah. So he goes and calls the Sanhedrin and Sidkiah. And Nebuchadnezzar uh, tells them, He tells the Sanhedrin, Did you see what Sidkiah did? How he violated his vow? 
Lav hachi ishteba bishma bdeshmaya dela megalena. He made a vow to heaven that he's not going to reveal what I did. And now look how he went against his vow. What do you think about that, Sanhedrin? Amri le itasheli ashibuata. Sanhedrin said, no, it's okay. We annulled his vow. So he didn't do anything wrong. But Nebuchadnezzar, he knows his dafyomi. Amai lehu mishtalina shibu'ata. Nebuchadnezzar asked them, is that true? You really undid, undid the vow? Amri le'in, yes, we did. Amai lehu befanav o afilu shelo befanav. Now Nebuchadnezzar, see, he knows his dafyomi. He knows the right question to ask. And he says, Sanhedrin, um, are you allowed to uh, undo a vow not in front of the object of the vow? Nebuchadnezzar says, I am uh, a party to this vow. He made a vow to me that he's not going to reveal my secret. Are you allowed to annul that vow um, uh, uh, without me? Right, in general, are you allowed to, do you have to annul a vow in front of the person who's involved in the vow, or can you do it without the person? Amrali Befanav Sanatin says, yes, indeed, the halacha is, as we just saw in the Braita, that they can only undo the vow in the presence of the other person that is affected by the vow. And so Nebuchadnezzar counters, now you just admitted that you undid the vow, not in the presence of, uh, not in my presence. So you, Sanhedrin, what did you do? How come you didn't tell Sidkiyahu that you cannot un- uh, annul the vow unless Nebuchadnezzar is here? And then you would have had to call me in, and then I would have uh, known what was going on. Immediately, here we apply a pasuk in Echa, they sat upon the ground, they were silent, the elders of the daughter, uh, the elders of Sion. Uh, so the Zikanim here is referring to the Sanhedrin. Immediately when Sidkiah said that, they were embarrassed. And they realized, yes, they made a mistake. They, they were not allowed to un- annul the vow. And by doing this, they caused a terrible situation that now Sidkiyah rebelled against the Nebuchadnezzar uh, by, uh, by going against the vow. And because of that, the Nebuchadnezzar came and eventually uh, took revenge and destroyed the Beit HaMikdash. So all because they did not follow this halacha strictly. Um, so Yeshua La'aretz, we take literally that the Sanhedrin, remember the Sanhedrin, usually they sit on cushions above, uh, the, the students sit on the floor and the teachers would sit on cushions. But when they realized this mistake, the uh, members of the Sanhedrin took out, took out the cushions and they sat on the floor to show their humility, remorse, and, uh, and in fact mourning. Uh, over what would happen, uh, over what happened afterwards. Um, okay, very interesting midrash, um, and uh, I'm not sure where they got that theme of the eating the live rabbit. We got to we got to check into that. Okay, next mishnah. Rabbi Meir Omer, Yes, Tevarim Shen Kenolad Ve'enan Kenolad Ve'en Chachamim Modim Lo. We saw in the previous mishnah that Rabbi Eliezer is the most lenient, and he says if there's a new situation that comes up that you didn't expect, all of a sudden this guy who you said I'm not going to have benefit from him becomes a sofer. Right? Uh, then that's a new situation and you can annul the vow based on that. That was Rabbi Eliezer's opinion. Hachamim, however, said no, you cannot do that. Um, maybe the person still would have made the vow. 
even uh, with that new situation in mind. And so therefore, Chachamim said no. So now we have an in-between position. The Rebbe Meir says, there are some things that are like new, uh, a new event, but they're not really a new situation. And therefore, in these cases, you can annul the vow. But Chachamim disagreed and they said, even in these cases, you cannot annul the vow. So what is this in-between case? Kesad. Amar kunam shani et pilonit met Person says, um, uh, uh, prohibited to me is this woman that, and I will not marry her. You know why? Because her father is evil. I'm not marrying this person. Her father is evil. So he gave, he made a vow, but he also gave a reason. So now, if they come and tell him, oh, the father died, or he made Teshuvah, now he's a good guy. Oh, in this case, um, so Rabbi Meir would say, this is, it's not a, really a totally new situation, because here, the person explicitly gave a reason, he's, that why he's making the vow, I'm making this vow not to marry her, because her father is bad. Well, then it makes sense that this is basically uh, a condition. It's more than even an implicit condition. Um, it's not an explicit. He doesn't say, I will not marry her as long as the father is evil. Um, so he doesn't actually make it a condition. But by making it a reason, um, it's, uh, he, it anticipates that if the reason should change, it will be easy to undo the vow. Some say you don't even have to know the vow. Some commentaries, even on Bam, that it's it's uh, it's null and void by itself, as if it's actually a condition. Others say you still have to go through the process of annulling it, but that this is even if you would agree with uh, uh, disagree with Rabbi Eliezer in the previous Mishnah, Rabbi Meir says, but this case, since you gave the reason, that can be used to annul the vow. So that's one case. The second case is uh, where a person says, I make a vow, I'm not going to enter this house um, uh, because there's a wild dog in there or there's a dangerous snake in it. I'm not going to enter that house. And then eventually they come and say, oh, that dog died. That snake was killed. Um, so this is like a new situation in that it, it was it is a new uh, uh, it is a new uh, um, uh, unfolding of news because it was alive and now it's dead. Uh, but nevertheless, it's not totally new because he did give it as a reason. So therefore, the reason is like a condition. And that's why you can undo it according to the Bimeir. However, and Chachamim Modim Lo Chachamim, however, disagree, and they say no, you cannot annul the vow, not even in not even in these cases. Okay, Gemara um, says, "Kunam shani nechlas ba'itzer shakelav gomer met noladhu." So the Gemara is wondering, what do you mean? This is like a nolad, but it's not nolad. Uh, it's not a new situation. If the, fa- that, the father of this uh, uh, woman dies or the dog uh, uh, dies, that is in fact a new situation. What do you mean it's not really a new situation? In what way is it enonolad? Interesting here that dying is like is born, right? Nolad literally means to be born, uh, but here it means a new situation. So death is a new situation. Bedavar. What Ravuna explains? No, it's not nolad. It's not a totally new situation because since he gave a reason. I'm not going to go into the house because there's a dog there. So that is like, as I explained before, that is like a condition. And since it's as if he added a condition in, 
into it. It's not really a new situation. He kind of anticipated, oh, I'm not going to go in because the dog died. So obviously, uh, I'm not going to go in there because I'm scared of the dog. Obviously, if the dog dies, then I will go in. That's Rav Huna's opinion. Don't understand the Mishnah this that way, that it died after the vow, but rather it had already died. Um, he just didn't know it. Um, or that the, the person, the father, already made Teshuvah. So, um, according to the Biochanan, person says, I'm not marrying that woman because I know her father is a bad guy. All right. And then, so he makes a vow. Then they come and tell him, oh, listen, you made the vow, but a few days ago, the father already died. Or a few days ago, the father already made Teshuvah. So at the time that you made the vow, it really didn't apply. So this is actually not Nolad. It's not a new situation that changed after the vow. The vow was based on a mistaken assumption to begin with, and therefore the vow never applied. So the Biochanan says that's where the Bimeir will permit uh, the will we'll permit uh, the vow, um, and that would make sense why you, you wouldn't even have to annul the vow in that case if it was made based on false a false premise. Okay, so that's Rabbi Yonah Rabbi Yochanan. We're going to challenge uh, one of them. Matib Rabbi Abba, kunam sheni nose liplonit keura, vaharehi na'a, shechora, vaharehi levana, kesara, vaharehi aruka, mutar ba, lomipne shekeura venase na'a, shechora venase levana, kesara venasit aruka, ela, shehaneder ta'ut. We're going to see in a Mishnah on the next staff that if a person says, this woman is prohibited from me to marry, I'm not marrying this woman because she is ugly. But it turns out she actually is in fact beautiful. Well, I don't know why he thought she was ugly. He saw her from a weird angle or someone told him, but it was a wrong assumption. Uh, or uh, he said, I'm not going to marry her because she's dark. But in fact, she was light-skinned. Uh, you shouldn't take this as racist. They're not talking about different races. Everybody here is Middle Eastern. But just different shades, right? This guy prefers uh, lighter skin. And so he, uh, he thought that she has darker skin. But it turns out no, it was just uh, you know, a dark night. And he didn't, he didn't see well. And it turns out, and really, she has a light complexion. And or he thought that she was short and said, I'm not going to marry her. She's too short for me. But it turns out that she's actually tall. Um, in all these cases, it, it, she is permitted. The, the, the vow is null. And it's not because she was ugly, she became uh, pretty. It's not because she was dark and she became light. Not because she was short and all of a sudden she grew. But rather, from the beginning, the vow was a mistake. Okay, that's the Mishnah. Now, um, now let's see how we can explain it. According to Ravuna, I'll explain the previous Mishnah, the one that we just read, that the reason there is because it's like he made a condition where he says, I'm not going to marry this woman because her father is a mean guy. So there, there that's one category that you can annul a vow if the if he gives a reason because the reason we take as a condition and therefore the 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 vow is annulled and this the next mishnah here about uh, the short and tall 
That's teaching another category where it was a mistake to begin with, and it was not even true when he made the vow. So I understand, according to Rabuna, why we need two Mishnayot. The previous one is to teach the rule about um, an implicit condition, and the next Mishnah is to teach a something that was a mistake to begin with. So everything is good, according to Rabuna. But according to Rabbi Yochanan, who says the previous Mishnah about the mean father-in-law, the mean future father-in-law, that who uh, where and Rabbi Yochanan says that father, the father of that woman, already died, already made teshuva even before he made the vow. Well, then that, since that Mishnah already is t- teaching only the principle of neder ta'ut, and the next Mishnah about the short and tall woman is also about a mistake in neder ta'ut that was never true, well, then you don't need both Mishnayot. It's redundant. What, are you going to bring 100 cases of, uh, of the same principle? And so therefore, Rabbi Yochanan, we cannot account for why you need to Mishnayot about the same very case, and uh, so therefore we leave that with a question and we don't answer it. Um, and so therefore, uh, but for Kofar we can explain why you need both of them to teach two different principles. All right, next Mishnah. Okay, said further, if you want to um, annul a vow based on a pasuk in the Torah, and you tell the person, listen, you made a vow that you're not going to give any benefit to that person, right? I don't know, he was your friend. You got into a fight of some sort, and you said, I'm never giving you anything again. You are prohibited from receiving anything from me. Now, by doing that, you are violating, don't take vengeance, right? Maybe he did something to you, and uh, now you're taking revenge against him. But this is not permitted. Don't, uh, don't, don't, bear, don't be vengeance. Don't bear a grudge. By doing that, you're bearing a grudge, right? He didn't lend you something one time, and now you can make a vow. You know what? I'm never lending you anything again. This violates a law. Don't hate your, your friend and your heart. You should love your friend. And now you're violating any one or, 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 or all of these commandments. Would you have made the vow if you, if you had in mind that you're going to be violating these fundamental laws? If a person says, you know what, I really I didn't realize when I made the vow, I said it out of anger, and I didn't realize that I, I'm violating, I don't want to violate these laws, and I, ne- I never would have made the vow had, had I known this. In that case, according to the Bimeir, you can annul the vow. Or if a person, if the person that he made a vow against is poor, and the Torah says, "Give life to your friend with you; he should live with you." And from there we learn that you have to give him a loan, you have to give him help, um, you have to give him charity. And so, if the, this person that you got angry at, whatever reason, and you said, "I'm not going to give you any benefit," but now the guy's down and out, right? He's starving, and uh, now you're going to violate the law of not helping a poor person. Would you have made the vow? And if he says, oh, you know, I would not have made the vow, realizing that um, violating a biblical law, in that case, you can annul the vow according to the Bimeir. All right. Okay, beautiful Mishnah. Gemara asks, Rav Ketina Rabbanan, Nema de mi ane lav alayna fel. 
מאי דמטה לי לפרנסו בהדי כולה אמה מפרנסנה להם. So, רב הונא tells the son of רב קטינה, tells רבנן, wait a second, this guy who made the vow, he doesn't have to answer this. No, would you have made the vow knowing that you're violating, not helping your brother? The, but the person who made the vow can say to them, I'm not violating not helping my brother if I don't help him. He could say, anyone who gets who becomes poor, doesn't. I'm not directly responsible for every single poor person. I will provide, uh, um, I will provide what I am obligated to, to help. Uh, together with everybody else. In other words, I'm going to give to the UJA, to Bikor Cholim, I'll give to the, to the synagogue, to the Rabbi's Chesed Fund, I'll give to whatever collection agency there is that takes care of all the poor, and then I, I fulfilled my obligation to take care of the poor, and then that organization will go and help this guy. I'm not violating not helping the poor if I, if I don't give this person himself a sandwich, and so therefore, um, what are you talking about? That Why, why, would I, why, why do you say that I'm violating I'm still going to give just as much charity as before, and I'm still going to help all the poor. And so the rabbi said back to Rav Huna that um, we would tell that person, the, uh, this person making the vow who had this uh, uh, seemingly legitimate claim, says, no, when someone falls into poverty, they don't first directly fall into the hands of uh, the, the charity. Um, that has to go to the Gabai. In other words, a person uh, doesn't become totally impoverished immediately. They first, they originally, they have a job, they have a livelihood, they have, um, um, they have wealth, they're okay. And then what happens is, is step by step, oh, they lose their job, and then they have to sell off their, uh, their savings, and so on and so forth, until they end up being totally destitute. But the point of the pasuk is you should help the person on the way. And if you heard that the person lost his job, then you go, before he has to sell his house, go and help him out, help him find another job, give him a loan so he doesn't have to sell his house, right, and help him uh, to to get back on his feet and not have to fall into poverty. And you, by making this vow, you now are not going to help him anywhere along the way. Along the way, that's not up to the uh, the collection agency, right, the, uh, the, 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 uh, the charity fund is only helping people with uh, food and, you know, basic necessities when they're totally impoverished. But you're, you're, you are responsible, you know this guy, and if you can help him in any way, um, so that he doesn't become destitute in the first place, you are obligated to, and by not doing that, you're violating this law. And therefore, since you, if you knew you were violating this law, would you make the vow? And if he says, I wouldn't have made the vow, so that is a means of opening it up. All right, so this is, again, another beautiful law that teaches the importance of making sure that people, not, not only of helping people that are poor, but making sure that people do not become poor in the first place. Potrin la'adam b'chtuvat ishto. Okay, very often vows were made between spouses and a husband would get angry at his wife as she burnt the soup and he would say, that's it, you can never have, I'm not giving you any benefit. Um, and uh, then he comes and he, uh, he, 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 this is a problem uh, because if he says you cannot have any benefit from me, well then he can't, vi- he can't fulfill 
the obligations of his own ketubah that he wrote. And he promised that he's going to provide for her food, clothing, shelter, right, everything. And uh, now, if he's not fulfilling the ketubah, then he, we force him to pay, to divorce his wife and pay the ketubah. Here's the problem. He's going to open up the ketubah and remember that, oh, I, I wrote in the ketubah, I'm going to pay her this huge sum. Uh-oh, I don't really want to pay this huge sum. So here's the thing. He can go to the, come to the Sanhedrin, or to the Chacham, and the Chacham will say, if you had realized that you, by making a vow to not give any benefit to your wife, if you had realized that that would trigger that you have to pay the Ketuvah, and you have to pay this money here, one million dollars, would you have made the vow? person, if the person says, oh no, I didn't, I was just angry about the soup, but I never would have made such a vow knowing that I have to pay a million dollars now. So that is a valid reason to uh, annul the vow. We have even a story about this. One man, he made a vow that his wife cannot have any benefit from him. And now they can't, they can't remain, uh, they're married because he can't, he can't fulfill ona, food, everything. And so the, the guys, the, the ketubah was 400 dinar, huge amount. He came to Rabbi Akiva uh, and Rabbi Akiva said, well, you made a vow that you can't, not going to give her benefit? Well, then you're violating your ketubah, so you have to divorce her and pay the full amount. This husband's now negotiating. He says, Rabbi, Rabbi Akiva, I, my, uh, we and, uh, my, fa- my father had 800 dinarim. He was a wealthy man. And he died, and he left us that money, but I have a brother. So we split it. My brother took 400. I got 400. Now, shouldn't it be sufficient that of the 400 that I have, I'll, we'll split it in half. I'll keep 200 and my wife will get 200 and we'll settle on that. Right? Don't you think that's fair? Rabbi Akiva says, no, that's not how it works. Um, even if you have to sell the hair on your head, you have to pay the full ketubah, right? And that's all you have is 400. You have to give it all to her because you're obligated to pay the, pay the ketubah. And even if that means you're left with nothing, too bad. Even the hair on the head you'd have to sell. My law, the husband said, Oh, if I knew that, I had in my back of my mind that, you know what, I have 400. Well, though, you know, I'll go to, I'll go to civil court, I'll go to New York court, and they'll make me split it. That'll be sufficient. That's what I had in mind. I didn't know this. And if I knew that I would have to pay the full amount of the ketubah, and I'd be left with nothing, I would never have made a vow. Rabbi Akiva says, oh, in that case, you, um, this is a valid peticha, and Rabbi uh, Akiva annulled the vow uh, based on his unwillingness or, um, and, and, and uh, not realizing the, that he'd have to pay the full amount of the ketubah. All right, that's the Mishnah. Gemara says, Wait a second. Rabbi Akiva says, you even have to pay, you even have to sell the hair on your head to pay her. Wait a second. The hair on his head, that's a movable item. Um, does a movable item, is that, is that mortgaged for the ketubah? Uh, well, we thought that ketubah is only paid from land, right? And land that the husband own, owns or owned, even if he sold it, all that, she has a lien on it. But not movable items. What? The hair on his head. 
למד אביה, קלקה שווה שמונה מאות דינר. אביה attempts an answer, and he says, wait a second, we know the numbers, because it says that the original land that the father owned was 800 דינר, and that means half of that that his son gets, says the husband is 400. So actually there was 400 of land that he had to pay her. So there's no problem, he can pay the entire amount of the ketubah from land itself. So there's no problem of movables. So now we clarify the question. Our question was just from the language of Rabbi Akiva. Why did Rabbi Akiva say you have to pay even uh, from the hair, even if you have to sell the hair on your head? But which implies that if there was not 400 of land, then he would have to pay movables. That was our question. So, okay, here's the answer. Um, what Rabbi Akiva meant to, was saying is that even if you have to sell the hair on your head for your own food, you still have to get rid of all, your, all, all of your land. In other words, the husband cannot say, wait a second, all my land is 400, that's everything I own, and you can't leave me destitute, what am I going to eat? Rabbi Akiva tells him, that's right, you have to give all of your land away, if that's all you have is 400, what are you going to eat? That's your problem. Sell the hair on your head, right? From that, from movables, anything that you have. But yes, you're obligated, even if you're left penniless, you have to pay every single penny of the ketubah. Now we ask, Can we learn from here um, uh, the answer to a machloket that we have in Masechah Baba Metziah? Over there, we talk about um, someone who owes a lot of money. And maybe he owes more money than he has, right? So do we make a deal, an arrangement with the creditor? Um, this would be uh, something equivalent to modern bankruptcy law, right? If a guy uh, only has half a million dollars and he owes a million dollars, we, we tell the creditors, listen, he doesn't have it. He declares bankruptcy, and you don't take every last penny from the guy, um, but rather we leave him a little, right? You, the, uh, we leave him uh, a, a place to live, some, uh, some money, to, some food to, to eat. Uh, we don't take uh, his, you know, his shirt off his back and leave him penniless, um, but we make, uh, we make an arrangement. Listen, you know, you're not going to get paid back everything, and so you can get paid back uh, you know, this percent of what you were owed, um, but the person who declares bankruptcy is allowed to keep a minimum amount in order that he can continue living. So in Baba Metziah has the same thing. There's a machloket. One opinion says you take every last dollar for him. It's his fault, right? You leave him on the street without a shirt on, right? Because he owes money. That's the way it is. But the other opinion says no. Um, if, if he owes money, then you give the, the person who owed the money, you let him keep one month worth of food, one year worth of uh, clothing. Let him keep his bed and make sure he keeps the he can keep the tools of his trade. If he's a scribe, he gets to keep his quill and his ink, right? Because what's the point of taking that? Then he's going to be in continual poverty. At least uh, let, give him the ability to continue working in his trade. That's the other opinion. So we ask, based on this discussion we just had here, where Rabbi Akiva says that the husband has to pay everything and sell everything. All he is going to have left is the hair on his head. Even that he's going to have to sell. Um, and no, we, we, we leave him with nothing from the land, and uh, he'll, have, he'll have to sell the hair, hair on his head to eat. So can we learn from, th- from this that uh, an answer to our machloket over there that we do not make an arrangement and we leave the, we leave the creditor um, with absolutely nothing? 
um, uh, we, we don't make a deal with the creditor and we leave the person who owes money with absolutely nothing. Can we learn from that? And we say not necessarily. Amar of Nachman Berebi Yitzchak Lomar She'en Mekara'in Shetar Ketubah No, even Rabbi Akiva might agree that we'll leave the guy with some money. Let's say out of the 400 dinar, we're not going to leave him destitute. We'll leave him 10 dinar so that he can at least eat and continue um, to have somewhere to sleep and have some clothing. But we don't forgive it altogether. We don't tear up the marriage contract to say, oh, you're paid in full. No, you're still going to have to pay that eventually, right? So you pay everything that you can now, have some uh, leftovers so that you can live, continue to work, and then eventually when you make more money, you'll pay the rest. So um, uh, so, so therefore, even in this case that the Biakiva says, you have to sell the, sell the hair on your head, that um, uh, that means that you will have to pay the full amount eventually. But it could be very well be, be that we make a deal at this point to say um, uh, th- that you pay as much as you can, but you still keep a sufficient amount to live. Baruch Adonai Leolam. Amen v'amen.